You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Well, I, I volunteered to, to be up there as well, but um, they, never, they never called me back. Uh, I think we should also do a shout out to Roseanne back there for keeping up on the slides. That's... Uh, if I'm hard to follow, and uh, uh, so grateful for the Lord, what he's doing in our church, and uh, uh, how different people express their heart for the Lord, and it wasn't that just so beautiful, it's just so powerful, whether you are familiar with the genre or not, you can't deny that that was glorifying to God, and describing the miracle of the virgin birth, and all that Christmas is about. Uh, You can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now with copies of God's Word. Maybe you left yours at home or maybe you don't have a Bible. We can lend this to you or this is our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. So just raise your hand up nice and high. Don't be shy or holler at them as they're making their way up the aisle. It's, It's the point of no return. And all it takes is one click. You're, uh, you're signing up for a new email account, you're trying to do some online banking, or you're getting uh, up to speed with the latest social media app, and that you've gone through all of the steps, all of the personal information and everything, and then there's this one last point of no return that says, click here if you have read our terms and conditions. And I'm here to make a confession, and I'm pretty sure that I am not alone in saying this, that I have never read the terms and conditions. Why is it that it's always the last step? Why is it that it's always hidden in this microscopic fine print? Why is it that if you can squint enough to read it, it's written in such technical jargon and legalese that I couldn't understand it in the first place? Now Jesus, when he came to the earth, When he laid it out, what following him really meant, what it really involved to be his disciple, he didn't hide it in fine print. He spoke it as clearly as could be heard. He didn't cloak it in legalese or complicated technical jargon. He made it as plain and as plain can be. And he didn't save it for the very end. No, right from the get-go, he was very upfront about the cost of discipleship. And we've been going through this series called Following Him, where we've looked at the call of discipleship, the cross of discipleship, and and the conflict that comes into our life from the outside world of discipleship, and the community of disciples, and how important that is. And today we're going to talk about the cost of discipleship, and what it means to follow Him. Luke chapter 14, find verse 25. It says that now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, 
going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would speak through it. God, we thank you that we have your word that you have spoken to us. We thank you that we have your son who spoke so clearly about what it means to be his disciple, who spoke so clearly about what it takes to receive eternal life. And God, I pray that you would speak loudly and clearly through your word today. God, I pray that I would get out of the way, Lord. I pray that my voice would not be heard, but that your voice would ring loud and clear in this place today. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It says in verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. And that's the context here, that Jesus is speaking into the crowd as he so often does, and he's looking not just for the crowd, he's looking for the called. And he's speaking to all of these people because he knows he's on his way to Jerusalem right now. And this crowd is with him. And this crowd, they're going to pick up their palm branches and they're going to wave them and say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But this same crowd is going to yell, crucify him, crucify him. And he knows that crowds can come and go. And he isn't isn't enamored by the numbers. And he's just not looking to make a crowd. He's looking to make disciples. And then throughout this passage, he's speaking to the crowd about those who cannot be his disciples. He says it three different times at the end of verse 26. Cannot be my disciple. At the end of verse 27. Cannot be my disciple. At the end of verse 33. Cannot be my disciples. Do you see it there? He gives three, three definitions Three barriers, three things that if, if, if you're not willing to do this, you cannot be my disciple. And so those three statements that Jesus gives, that's going to form our outline of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. What is the cost of discipleship? Here's the first one. It's a relational cost. It's a relational cost. The first point is the most shocking Listen to what Jesus says in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even in his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Hate seems like an odd thing to be coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. Hate seems like an odd thing for someone to say who had so much to say about love. When someone asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He didn't say hate. He said the greatest commandment is to love. To love God with all your heart and soul and mind. And he said this is the first greatest commandment. He said the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Matthew 22, 36 to 39. That's 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 part of our mission statement. That we need to be a community of love. And here Jesus is saying hate. Jesus said that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Wouldn't our wife and our husband count as our neighbor? He tells us to honor our father and 
I'm sorry, he tells us we, we need to hate our father and mother. Wouldn't they count as our neighbor? Exodus 20, 12 says that we're supposed to honor our father and mother. Ephesians chapter 5 says that we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Shouldn't we? Why would he say that we would hate them and not love them? As we're told so many times in the Bible. I mean, even in Luke 6, 27, we're supposed to love our enemies. And so if we're supposed to love our enemies, how is it even possible that we would hate our loved ones? What else could you call father, mother, sister, brother, husband, wife, children? They're our loved ones. They're not meant to be hated. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, there's a bit of a disconnect between our culture and our manner of speaking in our day and age and Jesus' culture and the manner of speaking from his day. Jesus is actually using a figure of speech that was very, very common in Hebrew culture. This love and hate contrast. In Romans chapter 9, verse 13, the Apostle Paul, he's quoting God speaking through Malachi. Where he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But if you read the book of Genesis, God loved both of them. God provided for both of them. God made promises for both of them. God protected both of them. But it was Jacob that was the chosen one. And that choice, that decision, that contrast of I choose this one rather than the other in Hebrew culture, it was a love and a hate. Jesus isn't saying that we are supposed to have this intense loathing towards our family members or that we're supposed to despise them with hatred. That's not what he's saying at all. For him, it's a matter of priority, a matter of sequence. Jesus says, I have to be first. He said it another way in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, where he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So when he's saying, hate father, mother, hate wife, hate children, what he's saying is anyone who loves father or mother or husband or wife or children more than me cannot be my disciples. But really, does that make it that much easier? I mean, don't you love your loved ones? Don't you love your family? Don't you think that if I were to give all of my love to Jesus, if I were to love Jesus first, then I won't have any love left for my family. Because we often think about love in this way, that we only have so much, we've got to give some to God and some to family. What Jesus is saying here is, love God first. Before you love your family, love God first. And this is why he says that, that when we are fully devoted in our relationship to God, when we focus on him, we open up our arms to receive incredible love from God. We get more back from him than we would ever give to him. And then that love flows through us towards our family. The decision to love God before your family is the best thing that you could do for your family. The person that loves God first loves their family best. That when you are so focused on love for God and so filled and overwhelmed with who God is and how much he loves you, 
then that love flows through you and you are able to love your family with a love that is purer, with a love that is more powerful, with a love that is more selfless, with a love that is more life-transforming than any love that you could muster in and of yourselves. And so don't think for a moment that your family would somehow be missing out if you were to focus all of your affection and attention on Jesus Christ. The best thing you can do for your family, the most loving thing you can do for your family is to love God first. And if your family loves God as well, they're going to understand. But what Jesus is getting at here and what's so difficult for so many of us is what if our family doesn't love God? And what if our family sees that we're loving God first and they take issue with it? What if, what if you become a Christian but your spouse is not a Christian? What if you become a Christian but your parents aren't Christians? What if you tried to raise your children to become followers of Jesus Christ but they have not chosen to follow him? That's where conflict enters into our relationship and that's where we need to make the conscious decision that Jesus comes first. Yes, things might be temporarily easier or there might be an absence of conflict but that will not be true peace. That will only be temporary. And you will not be truly doing what is best for that person in trying to take your love, your focus away from God. That may be what they want, but what God wants is for you to focus on him so that you can turn around and love and allow God's love to flow through you towards them. The familiar song says, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And it goes on to say, though none go with me, Still I will follow. There is a relational cost to following Jesus Christ. And some of us are living that right here, right now. Love God first. The relational cost. And as he's talking about hate and and choosing to love God first, he says at the end of verse 27, even his own life. Not only is there a relational cost, here's the second point, there is a personal cost that we are to give up our own life. He expands on that in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That there is a personal cost of following Jesus Christ. That there is suffering involved, taking up the cross. Sometimes our suffering comes as a result of our own sinful, selfish decisions. It's self-inflicted. Other times suffering comes according to the divine, sovereign plan of God the Father. To conform us, to make us more like Jesus Christ. God uses suffering in our lives. There is a personal cost that when a person comes to Jesus they need to recognize that they're coming to the end of themselves they're coming to the end of themselves I don't know I don't know about you I feel like this so often do you ever just get tired of self tired of being selfish tired of being self-absorbed tired of being so insecure about how other people feel about myself And Jesus offers us freedom from the shackles of selfishness to deny ourselves, to take up our cross. And yes, it's hard, but to live for something more, to live for something greater. There is a personal cost. I love Romans 6.11. It says, consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to self, denying self, taking up the cross. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Take up your cross. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We need to take up our cross. There is a personal cost. And Jesus again says, unless you do this, you cannot be my disciple. And he really wants us to understand this. And so he uses a couple of uh, illustrations. And uh, I work very hard throughout the week as I'm studying the Bible and trying to get ready to teach it to our church. I'm always working hard to try to think of illustrations, try to think of ways to explain it. And Jesus really helped me out this week because he already gave two illustrations. And the first one, he says in verse 28, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. In following Jesus Christ, he's not looking for someone just to slip their hand up at the end of a meeting. He's not just looking for someone to make a hasty emotional decision and coming forward during an altar call. We're not told to raise our hand. We're not told to come to the front. We are told to sit down and to count the cost. And here's the cost that we are to count. Verse 29. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him. Are you able to finish? Verse 30. Saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. When Jesus is talking to the crowd about what it means to begin your relationship with God, to cross this line and to become his disciple, from the very beginning, Jesus wants us to think about the end. When we're starting, he wants us to consider, will we finish? And I want to challenge you right now to sit and to consider, to count the cost. What will it mean for you going forward as a follower of Jesus Christ? Look at your family situation. Look at your job situation. Look at the way our culture is headed right now. Are you willing to count the cost? If you're watching the news, if you're reading the newspapers, you will see it's not getting easier to be a Christian in our world. It's getting harder. It's time for us all to sit down and to count the cost. Will I finish? You think back five years ago to 2010 and you think now to 2015. You think about how much our world has changed. In the last five years, you think about what's coming in the next five. What am I preparing my children for in the next 15 or 20 or 25 years? Will we finish? Are we sitting down and counting the cost? That's what Jesus wants us to do. He's not interested in some emotionally driven decision. He wants us to take this very seriously. And then he goes on with another illustration in verse 31. Or what king, 
going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now these two parables are very similar, but they're also very different. With the tower, you could build a tower or you could not build a tower. It's as simple as that. It's, 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 it's your decision. It's your resources. It's your land. It's your time. Build the tower. Don't build the tower. It's your choice. But with the king, the enemy is marching. It says, when he's talking about making terms of peace, it says, well, he's, he's still a long way off. He's making his way there. There is a sense of urgency in this second parable that, that it just isn't there with the tower. And even though there is urgency, because this, this is happening quickly, it doesn't mean that we need to rush the decision. The same advice is given. The same phrase. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and count the cost. They've got 20,000. I've got 10,000. The first parable asks, will I finish? The second parable asks, will I fight? Am I willing to lay it on the line? Am I looking at what is coming against me? And with the second parable, indecision is not an option. You might be here today and be thinking, yeah, you know, my family, they believe in Jesus and I'll probably get around to it one day, but I'm just trying to live my, listen, indecision is not an option. You need to sit down and to decide. Are you in or are you out in following him? That is the personal cost that all of us need to consider. And then in verse 33, he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Here's the third, cannot be my disciple. Here's the third point. There is a material cost. There is a material cost. He says, anyone who does not renounce all that he has, he's talking about possessions. Now, if I were to be coaching Jesus on preaching... I probably would have had him rearrange his points a little bit. If I were to be giving him advice about how to communicate orally, I would have said, you know, do the money stuff up front. Then talk about like the personal cross or then talk about the the family. I mean, Jesus, it just seems kind of anticlimactic for you to be talking about money at this point. I mean, we... To be on good terms with our family, wouldn't all of us just give up whatever money we would have? And is not our life more important than money? But as I studied this further, I noticed an important word in verse 33. It's the second word in the verse. It's the word therefore. He's summing up here. The word therefore is always pointing back to what was said previously. So he's talked about the personal cost. He's talked about the relational cost. And he's, when, before he talks about the material cost, he says therefore. Here's why. Jesus knows 
Luke 12, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our willingness to pay the material cost is a window into where our heart is at about the personal cost and the material cost. If our heart is with our family, then our money will go into things of keeping our family happy, keeping our family safe, keeping our family having fun. That's where all of our money will go because that's where our heart is. If our heart is just for ourselves, then our money will be used for us to please ourselves. That's why Jesus mentions possessions at the very end. He says, so therefore, unless, so therefore anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple because it's an indicator of where our heart is truly at. It's also interesting that in in these statements, these cannot statements that Jesus gives in verse 26 and verse 27 and verse 33, he says, cannot be my disciple. This is why discipleship involves renouncing all that we have. It's because we belong to Jesus. He says, my disciple. Not just a disciple. That when you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, when you choose to follow him, you choose to belong to him. Your life is no longer your life. Your family is no longer your family. Your bank account is no longer your bank account. And so you move from ownership to stewardship. Everything that you have, you recognize has come to you from God and you are entrusted by God to steward that faithfully. He's not talking about getting rid of everything, but renouncing your personal ownership over your possessions, over your family, over your own life. Because Jesus says, you're mine. You are my disciple. And so there is a, a cost of discipleship, a cost that is relational, a cost that is very personal, and a cost that is material. And there's someone who's a part of our church family who has experienced the cost of discipleship firsthand. And following Jesus along these lines is not just theoretical for them. It is something that they have had to live through. It is something that they are presently living through right now. They're a part of our church family. This is, this is his story. Let's take a look at the video screen. While growing up, I was always known for having the sweetest tooth in the family. And uh, my friend, and my dear friend Mahbub and I would always uh, go crash weddings and receptions together because there were wedding grounds very close to where we lived. And uh, this was a really sweet opportunity because we, I used to get to dress up in my best attire and I would lend Mahbub just some clothes, some nice shirt and a trouser. And these nice clothes were our ticket to enter the wedding grounds. And we would go and enjoy some delicious rasmalai at the dessert bar. And it was amazing. 
Um, I grew up in quite an affluent family which had a lot of influence and power in our country. So for me, going in these elaborate and extravagant weddings was not a problem. But for Mehboob, it was always a huge stretch and that's why me lending him some of my clothes just helped him belong in that place. Every day in the morning, I would walk to a temple with Mehboob. Uh, but uh, at, at one point, when I was 13, it really struck me that Mehboob never came along with me into the temple all the way. Um, I asked my parents about that, why was that? And I learned that Mehboob, being my maid's son and coming from the lowest caste, uh, meant that he was limited to just entering up to the temple gates and he would be able to just worship the idols from there. Being raised in the highest caste meant that I had the privilege of walking all the way to the holy chambers where the idols were kept. This was the beginning of uh, a time in my life where I started doubting my Hindu faith and uh, just started having lots of questions but because of the fear of the bad karma that I would accumulate and also the fear of bringing shame to my family name, I limited those questions. The irony of this whole uh, situation was that Growing up, I was able to give Mehboob and lend him nice clothes to enter wedding grounds. However, I would not be able to do anything for him in order such that he would be able to have entire access into the temple and come along with me in the holy chambers where the Hindu gods were kept. I was really disappointed hearing about a god who, uh, who sees us and uh, who distinguishes us based on the color, based on the that we come from based on the family name that we are uh, born into and uh, my desire started I started that it was the beginning of the quest in my life where I started looking for that one God who did not see or looked past all those distinctions and just purely loved me for who I was in the summer of 2006, I had the privilege of uh, moving to Canada and uh, finishing my high school education. I chose to go to Carleton University, but before I started school, I had a summer that I had to work. Actually, it was Bramley Baptist Church where I got my first job in Canada, working as a translator for Immigrants Kids Camp. And it was a really interesting opportunity because even though I wasn't a Christian, I was able to work in a church environment and uh, it was actually through this uh, job where I first was introduced to the gospel. I remember one, uh, uh, one afternoon we were all doing our devotions and I heard the gospel for the very first time through Bob the Tomato and it was one of the episodes where Bob Tomato was talking about the God of love and it totally rocked my world when I first heard that because from my understanding and upbringing of my Hindu faith God never was a God of love. He, did not want to associate with anything that I had to do because I was unclean, unpure, and God is holy. So this was a huge contradiction in my worldview and in my faith. One of the things in Hinduism that uh, I was always very careful about was that I didn't want to accumulate bad karma and how to justify and redeem the bad karma was by doing sacred rituals and sacrifices to the idols which are called pujas and 
um, these pujas would help you to have a clear conscience and, and clean your slate of bad karma over the course of your time. After a few months, I decided to follow Christ and become a Christian. And it was purely because just understanding that God loved me so much that He sent His Son, Jesus, to be my puja in order to be with Him and in order to enjoy eternity with Him. The Gandhi name means the keeper of the Hindu faith. So my, de my desire and my decision to follow Christ meant that I had gone against what my upbringing was about and had gone not just against my parents but my grandparents and the whole lineage of the Gandhi name. Because of my desire and my decision to follow Christ meant I had brought a lot of shame to the family and a lot of dishonor. And um, from the time I got baptized, it marked the beginning of a new chapter where I had to, st where I started realizing how much I had to count the cost of following Jesus. In 2009, I got a frantic phone call from India and uh, it was a friend of mine who had read in the newspaper about a about an article just mentioning that I was proclaimed dead and uh, there was a mention in the obituary about a funeral service that was going to be held in my name. This phone call was probably the hardest and the darkest time in my life in my in my walk with Christ. I was proclaimed dead. Uh, there was a death certificate that was issued. There was a funeral in my name. And as far as my community back in India were concerned, they all not believed and thought I was dead and deceased. Jesus came down on earth so that I could have peace with God, but it also meant that there would be division between me and my family, me and my father and my mother, and this moment onwards marked that I had to carry my own cross and I had to count my own cost of discipleship of following Jesus. One of the greatest things that God has blessed me with is the gift, my wonderful wife, my beautiful wife, Abby, who has truly been a gift of God in my life. Our marriage marked the beginning of a new chapter in my life where there was, uh, there was healing and reconciliation in our family, where my parents uh, got a chance to witness just uh, the beauty of, the, of what the gospel meant in my life. It did not signify that I would forget and lose my Indian cultural heritage. Rather, it was just a change in my own personal worldview. The beauty of my newfound faith and the beauty even of the gospel is that God does not distinguish between what, what caste you're from or what uh, uh, upbringing you're from or what kind of family name you come with and uh, stuff like that. But God is so good because it, uh, it doesn't matter what kind of clothes you wear. He'll, he'll cloak you with His own righteousness so that you could be justified 
in presence of God so that you can be in community and communion with Him. Well, we're so thankful for uh, what God has done in the life of uh, Hamil Gandhi and uh, so thankful to have uh, him and his wife Abby, his son Arav, as part of our church family. So glad to have uh, Hamel serving on our staff team. And um, he's had some difficult chapters in his life. The story's not over. And God has done some amazing things. And we're uh, excited to see how he's going to continue to work. What I love about Hamel's story and stories like it is that there is a recognition of the personal cost, the material cost, the relational cost. There's a recognition of the cost that has to be given up. But that pales in comparison to, to what Jesus has done and what Jesus has given up. And when we contemplate the cost of discipleship, we need to contemplate the, the, the cost that all of us need to count and we need to understand that that is a cost that Jesus has already counted. That Jesus counted the cost for us. He counted the material cost. He was in the throne room of God. The Son of God being praised 24-7 by cherubim and seraphim, by angels. And he left that throne came in the form of a human, came to be one of us and laid in an animal feeding trough. There was a material cost. There was a personal cost for Jesus Christ. In all of his life, knowing that he was going to Jerusalem and that he was going to lay down his life and suffer and die, the scourging, the crucifixion, the spear through his side, the crown of thorns, the mocking, the pain, there was a personal cost that Jesus counted. And furthermore, there was a relational cost. Jesus, being the second member of the Trinity, lived in perfect, loving harmony with the Father and with the Spirit. Jesus had always been, from eternity past, the object of nothing but love and admiration from his Father. And yet, when he suffered and died on the cross, he was suffering and dying. He was bearing our sin. And the father who would always perpetually look at the son and say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That in that moment on the cross when Jesus was bearing our son, the father who always had his gaze on the son, who always loved him, the Bible says that he turned away. That Jesus being our propitiation, which means that he took on the anger of God, only ever knowing love from the Father, in that moment bearing the wrath, the fury, the anger of the Father towards sin. He counted the cost. And when we bring our costs to the cross, and when we bring our counting and count it against, measure it against the counting of the cost that Jesus had to do, That is what gives us the ability to do whatever it takes in following him. That is when we stop focusing on what we might have to give up and we begin to focus on what 
we have been given. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you too counted the cost. The cost of giving your one and only Son. And God, we thank you that you loved us enough to send him here so that we could be saved. And God, we thank you and praise you that your son counted the cost for us and that he suffered and died for us and that he rose again, Lord. And God, I pray that we would be found as a community of believers who are willing to do whatever it takes, a community of believers who have sat down and counted the cost and seen it as being completely worth it. Because if we have you, we have everything. And if we have you, we can lose nothing. It is all gain. And so God, I pray that you would impress that upon us, Lord. I pray that you would be with us by your spirit right now as we take these symbols, this cup and this bread, as we remember how Christ counted the cost, as Christ died for us. Be present with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.